0: Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist, author, and the originator of the awareness integration theory. Hello to Sean, our director in our studio. This is a show about what matters most in our life our minds, our thoughts, our feelings, actions, relationships. And our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. In this show, I will share the tip of the week about why we give up and what to do and how to be aware so that we don't. Then I will share with you how we go from love to separateness and back in the Ask Me segment. And I'm so excited and honored to bring you Dr. Arthur sierra Micoli, is a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He's been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for several years, and he's the author of American Reunited, a relational solution to bridging the political, social, and personal chasm-dividing, our nation we're going to talk about how to mend the the divide come together and empathize and really connect with each other but first here's the tip of the week here's the tip of the week. This quote from Thomas Edison, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. Has become really relevant this week. I've been talking to people with major goals in their life who have surrendered to their hopelessness and given up pursuing their goals. I've been talking to couples that have been married, and have given up on their marriage. Some remain in their marriage, but have given up inside. Some give up relating to their family members. Some not only give up on their body, but even abuse it. And others have given up on life. Why do we give up? Some people have an expectation that life, work, success, relationships should be easy. So when life brings obstacles in front of them, they get perturbed and give up. Many times people see other people's success and assume that they made it effortlessly in one night and rarely acknowledge all the years and the sweat and tears that it took to get there. There are people who will try a couple of times and then stop believing in themselves. They doubt their abilities and go into a state of powerlessness. It may be that they're in the need of additional skills that would get them closer to their goals, but they only try what is comfortable or available. And if it doesn't work, give up. Learning from people who are successful in these areas are important. Seeing what tools they have used and finding out how to obtain those skills are the way to go. When people have made mistakes in the past and felt shame or ridiculed by them, have difficulty moving forward or take a risk. Most of the time, they're afraid of making a mistake again and hold back. The anxiety of public humiliation that might be experienced by making a mistake or failure stops them from applying themselves. There are some people who see themselves as a victim and project that no matter how much they try, someone will ruin it for them and they can never win. Therefore, give up. Give up a fight that was never there, but only in their perception. Some can't visualize beyond where they are, and although they give lip service to future vision and goal, it is difficult for them to change or can't see or visualize all aspects of how it would turn out. And since they can't have a guarantee, they give up and stay in their comfort zone. Giving up a dream, vision, or a goal, usually creates resentment inside. Feelings of sadness, regret, frustration, powerlessness, and hopelessness creeps in. A sense of grief shows up for letting go of a certain future. Most of the time, as time passes, a sense of regret and remorse about not trying enough follows. The only time that I know giving up works is when one is giving up an unrealistic fantasy to deal with what is real in the present moment, since holding an unrealistic vision will only devastate the person more. So set your vision and goal about work, relationships, or any aspect of life. Visualize it. Identify the skills that you need to have for each phase. Timeline it and begin moving forward. When you hit an obstacle, learn from others who've been successful in that area and pursue it till it's actualized. For answers, for questions, for awareness, and finding all that might sabotage you from inside, go to my book. Life reset, the awareness integration path to the life you want. Do the exercises and you will be amazed about how you can find not only what you can be aware of, your day-to-day activity and your thoughts, belief systems, emotions and behaviors and the way that it's impacting in your life, but you can also look at how to bring back all the stuff that was from the past that's still sabotaging you. Thank you. go from loving each other to tolerating each other to can't stand each other but yet want to hang out or have to hang out and the relationships and then try to walk this way back into liking each other and then loving each other. I get that question consistently from um, married people uh, who are on the verge of divorce, from family members, from people who are neighbors, and from um, parent-child relationships. It's amazing that we we go into a relationship and will with all of this essence of wanting to relate, Wanting to connect, yearning um, to have amazing, safe, intellectual, heartwarming conversations and relationships with people who we think they're safe and we could be safe for them. I've watched many of the marriages where at the beginning of their honeymoon stage, they were completely in love and they would do anything. And even if they saw something wrong from their partners, they would give them the benefit of the doubt. They would actually listen and start talking and conversing and trying to resolve things. And then as years go by, the interest, to resolution would be less in this concept of I'm right and let me prove to you that I'm right and I have to fight for where I stand. Um, attempts to create more and more separation from there until one day that they just say, they call it quits. And it's like, I'm done. I'm totally done. And yet I don't want to be done. And even if I'm done with this relationship, who's, who says that the next one, I won't go through the same thing. I've gone through this with parents this week where their children, their grown children, it's just like, I don't like him or her anymore. Or children who see everything at the fault of their parents. And although they love them, but it's like they can't they can't relate anymore. And you can take that in the work environment. You can take that in your best friends. You could take that in your neighborhood. You could take that in country people, country men, country women. You can see that all over the place. What happens to us? Well, what happens is we lose interest. That at one point, when um, the desire is there for similarities and we go into relationships with the hopes of similarities and looking at our similarities consistently, and then after a while, we obviously start looking at our differences. And then we start resisting everybody else's differences. And we want them to be just like us because it makes our identity more clear for us. It gives us the right to be if other people mimic us. So then it shows up as I am it. I'm the powerful. And, um, you know, obviously my path is the right path. If I can enroll everybody else that they should do it my way. Now, maybe you'll say it nicely. And then if you can't say it nicely, then you get upset, then you can manipulate, then you can strategize. And we see all of this in marriages and uh, other close relationships, right? And even, you know, a larger relationships as such as uh, politics or uh, what we do in society. But what happens to us when we lose the concept of our similarities and the yearning that we originally had To be connected with people, to have a safe place to live, what happens to that part of us that really wants that while it gets overrided, but another part of us that wants to be right and wants to be righteous and feels entitled by whatever I say it should be, and anyone else who doesn't believe in the way I do should be beheaded and is not going to be in my life anymore. Well, we lose relationships. We go into our own cocoon. Um, And then we go into a place of um, hopelessness and um, almost a place of, I can't feel safe anymore in the world. I can't feel safe in my own home. I had a gentleman who after 17 years of marriage says, I go into a hotel and I feel better in the hotel when I'm alone um, versus waking up beside my wife in the morning. It's like, what happened? I remember them when they were completely in love and they went through this path and something changed when they thought that who I am needs to stay and you have to become just like me. Or I feel bothered, bothered and I don't want to be around you. So although it appears that my desire for the world to be just like me might appear to be great but because it isn't and because it isn't reality that i'm going to face a very very harsh and cruel reality that people aren't just like me and they will never be just like me there are areas that we're going to be similar there are areas that we could connect to and there's so many other areas that that we don't and yet if i look at that as a possibility to growth And I can actually look at who you are and look at how different you are. And maybe I can learn something. Maybe I can grow by learning something versus holding myself back in this cocoon. But not only that I would feel safe everywhere, among anyone, in any shape, form, any race, from any country, with any language or any color, that I could also feel a belonging everywhere versus feeling completely separated and isolated. And then I have to fight for where I am. There's no need for fighting. I can connect to you, whoever you are. And I can connect and I can feel you in however you are. And hopefully you will connect with me. And maybe in those aspects is where we could save our marriages and save our relationships and save our connections with our family members, with our friends, with our neighbors, with the world. And it might be a place where you and I can feel safe being together. Well, thank you for listening. Welcome back again everyone. I'm Dr. Fushan Zane and I'm so excited to have Dr. Arthur Sierra Micoli with me again. He's a licensed clinical psychologist who's been treating clients for more than 35 years. He's been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for several years. He's on the faculty of International Association of Wellness Practitioners, Global Presence Ambassador, and Parenting 2.0 and was recently awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Visioneers International Network. He was formerly the chief medical officer of SoundMindZ.org and is also in private practice. Um, Dr. Sierra Mikoli has appeared on CNN, Fox News, in Boston, Comcast TV, Good Morning America, and The O'Reilly Report. And he's a weekly radio guest on Your Healthy Family on uh, Cyrus Satellite Radio and Holistic Health Today. He's the author of more than 10 books today, we are talking about his latest book, *American Reunited: A Relational Solution to Bridging the Political, Social, and Personal Chasm Dividing Our Nation*. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, John. Good to see you again. Good to see you.
0: I love this book. It is so appropriate for our time at this, you know, at this point. Um, It's, uh, you know, every day as I am with clients, I experience what you wrote in your book about the fear, about the anxiety that's up there, or um, about the anger, about the rage, sadness, all of these emotions that show up for all of us as we watch the news, as we walk around our neighborhood, as we go to places that... You know, we've always known and we've always loved and then we suddenly are shocked by sometimes the way that we are treated or sometimes even um, You know, I've had family members who are shocked when they actually hear themselves or their family members or their friends of many, many years and um, they are, um, you know, it's almost like it's falling apart. So thank you for
1: writing this book. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. My pleasure. I, uh, I I very much wanted to write this book. It's probably the most difficult book I've ever written, but I, I think it's the most important as well because I, as you as you said, I am extremely disturbed by what's been happening in our country, the language, the way we talk to each other, the hateful speech. You know, it was ironic, my seven-year-old granddaughter, Carmela, and my 92-year-old patient both asked me the same question one day, why are people so mean? Why are we so mean? You know, because kids see it on TV, they see the language that we use, which has never been present in my lifetime, especially among political figures and uh, radio talk hosts and so forth. The the language is horrible. And we see that uh, we, we are encouraged to relate that way if somebody's on the opposite aisle and we have really have little appreciation for differences. Democrats and Republicans are both guilty, both uh, airing their their views and their hated their hatred toward each other. And it's, it's, it's driven by so much misperception, Fujian. you know it, the people with the greatest perception gap are the ones who are using the language. And it's interesting that the people who are politically disengaged, they watch a little bit of the news in the morning and a little bit at night, they, have the, they are the most accurate perceivers because Democrats think that Republicans are racist and Republicans think Democrats are socialists and neither is true. You know, that the majority of people are somewhere in the middle, but we have, we're in a time where extremes are really featured in the media a great deal. And the people that are participating in the media usually have the most distorted views and are encouraging other people to be on the bandwagon and hate the other the opposing side, which is very devastating to our democracy. Yeah, and
0: it's all over the world. It isn't just in the US. Yes. yes feel the war again in you know israel and palestine and it's going on and you see the war a lot of places so it was it's almost like at one point the world was going around okay can we be peaceful can we be adults can we negotiate and then somehow the world is turning around and becoming uh you know like teenage bullies at this point again and it's, it's like falling off the adulthood again and going back yes. Uh, yes. And just you know, and then allowing them like with an entitlement, almost like that, I do have the entitlement to, to be mean, and to to share my hatred, and then uh, and throw it on you, or even be violent at you. And we've seen yeah. this now also with Asians. So we see a lot that it just happens, and it just allow the the. I think what I'm shocked about is more the allowance. Um, that has been very much on the surface. In your book, you talk about hatred. Where does it come? Can you share with us, please?
1: Well, what I try to explain in the group, in the group, in the in, in the book is that hatred has its origin in childhood. It's not something that has come about just because of the political party that people belong to. Look, in January sixth, when people were storming the Capitol, and we saw someone take a poll flagpole and beating one of the one of the police officers one of the security officers with it that what had nothing to do with politics nothing to do with politics i have republican patients and republican friends who would never do that in their wildest dream that is about someone's unresolved issues in their life and people that grow up with that sadistic tendency they enjoy hurting other people it's usually because they were in a very helpless position early in their lives where they had no outlet And then their outlet means it becomes projecting it outward, rather than dealing with the uneasiness that they live with. So when people are using hateful language, when they're actually becoming violent, we're, we're told, at least by the media, that it's about their political persuasion. It is not. It is not about their political persuasion. It's about the unresolved issues in their life, that they would come to a point where they really are treating somebody with such hatred and want to hurt them physically. That's not about politics.
0: Uh, I, I totally agree and I you know we've also watched um, a lot of multi-generational hate like you could see that the child the children who are in <clears throat> together at school don't have that. they, they, they have an experience of face to face with people of all races, all colors, uh, you know from any type of origin. And then you also hear then this uh, multi-generational belief systems uh, that are filled with hatred, which are landed down and given down, handed down. And they talk to children and they get confused. It's like my own experience with this person who is, you know, white, black, Asian, this and that is not that. How come I go home and I say, you know, I have a friend who is whatever it is then then my mother or father suddenly have a different reaction and say, you can't hang out or don't you know that they are whatever they believe they are. And from there on, these type of belief systems um, also pass around. In your book, you talk about a personal experiences of trauma or neglect. Uh, and uh, there's also this aspect of um, hand-me-down uh, belief systems that half, a, half of the time people don't even know why these were there, they were just raised with them, without really having any experience of it.
1: I, I see it akin to mature spirituality, mature religion, for instance, we're, we're, we're raised in different religions. And hopefully, when we're adults, we can examine the facts of, of those religions. And we see not to give up our faith, but some aspects of it probably weren't true. When I when I was growing up Roman Catholic, I was told that we couldn't eat meat on Friday or we'd go to hell. And then we found out years later that the Pope at one point said that because the meat was bad in Europe and he was trying to get people to stop eating it. Okay. But who knew years later, I was treating a, a, a Catholic priest from one of the Catholic colleges at one point, And he said, I finally understand what you're talking about. You get this, these preconceived ideas early on and they stay with you. And he was teaching, of course, the religions of man, all the different religions. And he said, I understand exactly what you're saying. However, when he was leaving my office, he said, I never eat meat on Friday, just in case, you know, (laughs) because he still had it within him that there was something wrong about it because we learn it early when we're very vulnerable and it gets encoded in the emotional part of the brain. And then we think that it's true. You know that when I when I was growing up, the Irish were drunks, the Italians were in the mob, the blacks were lazy, the Jews were cheap, on and on and on. Homosexuals were going to hell. And then what did I what did I come upon as as an adolescent? Because I played sports, I intermingled with a lot of different people, and I did it as in college as well. None of it was true. There was a little bit of it that might have been true for some groups, but generally speaking, it it didn't come to bear. But they were things I was taught, just like you're taught different aspects of a religion. But our our responsibility as adults is to find out what the truth is, to perceive accurately. My whole career has been devoted to helping people understand and perceive themselves accurately and others, to reduce prejudice inward and outward, toward themselves and toward others. I think that's our responsibility as adults. Mm
0: to talk about income equality also affecting our society in a way that has uh, kind of taken people into different corners um, instead of feeling like the inclusion of all of us being human together but somehow the separateness um, not only of you know the uh, country of origin or race or uh, color Uh, You're also bringing the inequality effect that is uh, really affecting all of this hatred also. Can you share about that?
1: Well, you know, there are 40 million people, adults, living below the poverty line in the United States. 16 million children live below the poverty line. And we know that the people who have the lowest education... They, ha- they are in poverty, they have the highest suicide rates, they have the highest alcohol abuse rates, highest opiate addiction rates, because their lives are so difficult. And we, 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 are, we are the richest country in the world, but we have the widest wealth gap in the world of affluent countries. So we have to address that because when people are poor, when people are barely making it, when people are drinking too much to cope, or they're doing something else that's not good for them, uh, opiate addiction, whatever it may be, they're much more likely to be manipulated by the marketeers, the people in social media who are encouraged them to hate another group. Because now all of a sudden you have a a group that's caused this for you, they've made you this way. And for people that tend to project out their anger, now they have found a home and it's very much, it's very cultish and it's very dangerous because this group of people is particularly vulnerable, particularly vulnerable. I mean, suicide rates are up 30%. From women from the ages of 45 to 65, they're up 60%. And 200% for young girls from age 10 to 14. So we're in trouble, America. We are, we are in trouble. Things are not going well. Even though we are the most affluent country in the world, we have a great many people who, would, who are suffering in poverty every day.
0: Yes we are. Um, how do you suggest for us to lessen the hatred in our society? What I learned from your book, um, it talks about looking at ourselves and acknowledging first and taking responsibility about you know where my hatred or negativity shows up. Um, can you share about if uh, what are some of the steps to shift this in, in our
1: society? I think if we're going to be healthy individuals, we we have to try to eliminate prejudice toward ourselves and others. As I've said, we have to focus on perception. You know, no, nutritionists say we are what we eat. I say, as a clinical psychologist, we are what we perceive. We 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 have such a con- the concept confirmation bias. We kind of see what we want to see. You know, I tell a story in the book where when I was in a parochial school as a young boy. I was in eighth grade and I, I love to play football, but in my town, there were two high schools. There was a Catholic high school and a public high school. The Catholic high school didn't have football. So the priest, the young priest in my school was trying to convince me to not go against God and go to the public school and so forth. So I came up with a little idea of my own. I went to church every morning, early in the morning before class. And I looked up at the cross and I decided that if Jesus, the cross moved to the right I could play football, and if it moved to the left, I had to stay in the parochial school and not. And one day, after about 12 days of doing this, I was elated because I actually saw the cross move to the right, and I could play football. Now, of course, we know now the cross never really moved, but I thought it moved because I wanted it so badly to move. Our perceptions, you know, I talk in the book about knowledge truths versus feeling truths, my my seeing that cross move was a feeling truth not a knowledge truth and we have to try to as much as possible learn to perceive accurately we have to not listen to social media every day and digest everything we we think we hear or we see that's written and then we believe it we have to take time it takes time to understand who we are it takes time to understand our world but it's absolutely necessary if we want to make ourselves happy, those around us, and do something for our world that we perceive accurately. And we're filled with distorted perceptions right now, filled with it. That's why on both sides of the political spectrum, there's an, an immense amount of distortion. But you know, there's only about eight, uh, six to 8% of people who are to the far right or to the far left. The rest are in the middle called the exhausted majority because they're just tired of this. They're tired of the bickering back and forth, and it is a minority of people that get the get the microphone in their hand. It is not the majority and Democrats and Republicans, when we look at the facts, which I've tried to outline in the book, have much more in common than would be than you would think when you listen to social media or read in social media.
0: There's also a lot of conspiracy theories that are running around in um, all the social media, in the media itself. And um, it's it's amazing how much um, and it gets filtered through the social media for people who um, you know are part of a group. And um, when you say about the, you know, the truth, it, it has been difficult for people to find out what the truth is because the truth is being fed to them. Um, through the, you know, the algorithms that will give you whatever you, you, you appear to be interested, or even you check out one time, then it's going to get bombarded at you. Um, And then when you gain it's as if of the mirror constantly brings you the same thing. At one point, there's an assumption. You have the assumption that this must be the truth. If I'm being bombarded from so many layers while the only reason you're getting bombarded with this level of truth or with this level of conspiracy theories is because you, you know, you asked for it almost like you, you know, you did a search and it's suddenly. Yeah. coming yeah. Yes, more of how to um, what are your suggestions about how to open up this gate of understanding all of these sites. Where do we go? How do we open our eyes so that we could get information of for all of it? You know, get better understanding of the knowledge truth.
1: I would caution people that if if it's evening news, most of the stations have their bias. Some are more more liberal, more democratic. Some are more Republican, and some outright lie. So you have to do some work. You have to do some reading. You have to check out different sources. But keep in mind, the people that are seen to be the most accurate perceivers are people that don't watch the news for hours. They don't watch the same station over and over again. We know it's human nature that if you hear the same thing, you know, think of commercials. You hear the same commercial over and over again. You finally, you're you're in a You're in the supermarket and and you're buying a certain kind of soap and you don't even know why, but you heard the commercial 13 times in the last seven days. So your mind is programmed. And if we keep hearing the the same rhetoric, we tend to believe it and then then we act upon it. And again, it's the vulnerable people. It's the people that are angry that haven't dealt with their disenchantment with themselves that are going to be most vulnerable to what they're hearing but we have to check out different sources. But don't be a news junkie. And remember, the people who write on social media, it's been proven by credible studies. The people who write the most are, are the most have the, the greatest perception gaps. And the people who are spending less time when when, when tests are given, they are the most accurate perceivers because they don't have all of that data inside them. They can look at a situation and discern it accurately rather than assuming that it's based on what they've heard over and over again.
0: So if we were gonna listen to, to our brain um, and no, not go necessarily with what the feeling truth is uh, but on the other side, the, uh, we, what you said also is if it's coming to me and I'm holding it somehow subconsciously in my brain, how do I distinguish and uh, so that I can listen um, listen from a logical place and look at what's happening versus, uh, you know, the feelings truth that comes up.
1: The key, Fujian, is knowing yourself. Because if I know my biases, I know some of the sensitivities that, that I have, and everyone has them, then I can filter them out and put them aside. If, If... If I haven't done that, and if I'm still carrying old hurts into the present, my emotions are not a very accurate guide. Emotions can be an accurate guide if we're not carrying a lot from the past that distorts what we see. That's the key, knowing ourselves, reducing the prejudice about ourselves first, doing doing our homework about ourselves first, then we're more apt to be able to perceive accurately. But if you're carrying old hurts with you, it's like someone who gets just went through a divorce and they look and they see a woman who looks like their ex-wife and they and the ex-wife had an affair or they had some conflict with yeah automatically you're feeling uncomfortable about this person in front of you and you don't even know her. The past influences the present until we resolve it and then we can perceive accurately. if you're carrying those hurts with you, And we all, if we take the time, can recognize which ones we are carrying with us and we can do something about them, then we're open to seeing clearly, not in a biased way.
0: The experience that I have is that we're all prejudiced. We all stereotype. And um, when there is an upholding of a principle, for example, for me to say, it's not okay for me to be prejudiced, then I can start watching. Like I've started watching the, the, the sentences that automatically show up in my brain because of you know, cultural factors, or you know like somebody's driving slow and I automatically have a, I look, like there's no reason for me to look, but I've watched myself like look in order to prove to myself, for example, a stereotype that I have about somebody who, who drives slow. And I start watching these prejudice uh, concepts and I like catch them and then I shift them and then I release them. But I also know that for example, me and a lot of people and how I hear you talk about it is yes, if I go into a principle that being prejudice is not okay then I will exercise those. I've also come across a lot of people recently that um, they have a certain entitlement about their prejudice. Is as if like, well, yeah, of course I am, and I have the right to be. Um, and that's part of like, there's no movement there when someone is so entitled about their hatred, about their prejudice, about the stereotyping. And as if like they're defending themselves because they feel fear, they feel threatened. Yes. Threat might not even be accurate. Again, it could be like a you know a cultural thing that has come through years, and that's just not even accurate anymore. But can you have a suggestion for people who know of or they watch themselves and listen to themselves that they have that type of an entitlement about their prejudice and hatred?
1: Well, that's a hard individual to interact with. I mean, that that's where. a a very high level skill comes in because it's not easy to influence a person who's made up their mind that way. I I call it pathological certainty. They're absolutely sure that they, that their, that their view is correct and they have a right to hate. And if you feel like you have a right to hate, ask yourself, really, is it, is it the, is it the person or the group in front of you? Or is it something inside you that you have not resolved? I do think, we're in a time where we have those extremes. You know, Americans are less centrist, and we have the, you sp- we the, these extremes, and the extremes are not accurate. The, the assumptions that we make about people from those extreme views are not accurate. But you're really asking that person who's so convinced that they're right, and they have a right to dehumanize another individual, that that is not healthy for them either. Not only for the other group, it's not, help, it's not healthy to live with that resentment and that misery inside you to go around hating people. I often encourage people, don't even use the word hate. Real, try not to use the word and see how you feel. Because if you hate other people and you're holding on to, and again, it is, an, it is the, the people on the extreme ends, either, either the progressives or the ultra conservatives who are using that hateful language. And why are they doing that? Why did they have to do that? Why can't they appreciate differences in other people? It's because of their own unhappiness with themselves. But you're asking the critical question, how do you influence? That's why I wrote this book. Try to look at the facts. Try to look at the facts, not not what you believe are the facts, but let's let's really examine what the truth could be. Could you possibly be inaccurate? Of course, like you said, we all grow up with prejudices. We all do. It's the openness to look at them. But that's the hard work, to, to re- relate in a, in a realistic way, to try to get people to slow down enough to look at the facts. And that's where empathy comes in. I mean, empathy means, rather than me getting angry at you because you don't, you don't believe what I believe, I'm trying to understand how it comes about that you believe what you believe. I have to try to bring the tempo down so that you feel secure with me. You don't feel threatened by me because I am am legitimately curious about how you come to think the way you do. Most of the time when you can do that, people are more apt to look at the facts. They're more apt to change because the giving and receiving of empathy produces oxytocin, that connecting hormone that makes people feel more secure and safe. That's the kind of dialogue we need to have. If we're going to make any change, if we're going to alter fixed views, we have to have that kind of dialogue, empathic immersion with each other.
0: You said the word um, genuine interest in knowing and wanting to know why another person comes to believe what they believe. And I think that genuine interest uh, is the start of the um, of the empathy also? Uh, many people show interest, but it's more like a strategy of let me show interest so you can tell me what you believe so that I can you know knock it down. Yeah. So it's like a communication strategy of uh, allow me to prove my point to you versus having an understanding of what's going on uh, with you. And then, so that maybe we could, you know, meet in the middle, or I can get um, a better understanding of, you know, what another group might even think about. Um, how do we get that genuine interest? Because you really got to get out of yourself in order to put yourself out there.
1: You know, I I use the interfaith uh, uh, groups and interfaith movement in our country as an example. I'm I'm so impressed with people of different religions who get together and they they become good friends. What they listen to each other, um, uh, they they take information from each other. They're not threatened by each other. They still hold hold on to their own faith, but they learn from each other, and their 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 world becomes very wide. And I think. When when you live that way you have you, you, you find diversity so interesting you find people that are different than you so interesting. And it makes the world more interesting it makes you not you're not so cloistered and afraid, because you can only relate to people in your cluster your group. So it opens up the door, and I think that's what we have to do, we have to try to understand other people and how they think differently than we do that's what empathy is. It's understanding the unique experiences of another person. In
0: the um, as you look at the world, especially U.S., what do you contribute? Uh, the causes of uh, rage and anger, and suicide rates, and high level of opiate addiction. A lot of this is uh, is risen. Not that it was not there before, but the ratio is um, is really. Uh, staggering, and it's really—I um, I can't say it's surprising, but it's—it's—it's um, heart melt. What do you see the reason of this? Um, you know, past couple of years of all of this rising.
1: Well, we know in in the last three to four years, we know that anti-Semitism has been the highest it's been in thirty years. Islamophobia went up sixty-seven percent in one year. Racism is up. Crimes against people of different sexual orientation is up. Sexism is up. The 63% of women in the workforce say that they feel intimidated and are treated in, in ways that are frightening to them, but they're trying to hold on to their job. So why did it happen in recent, why has this happened in recent years? Well, one thing is leadership matters. The way we see people talking, particularly politicians, the the, use, the language, the hatred, the anger, the vitriol, the demeaning of of the other side—that has had an effect. It desensitizes the public to other people. Look at what we heard about Muslims, and you know it was all so many distortions that were not true, but we still heard it over and over again. And certain people taking a strong stance in that regard, and the language the language associating people with animals and other things, it it was awful. And it filters down. It filters down when you hear it over and over and over again. So leadership matters. We need, you know, I wrote a book called The Soulful Leader. We need soulful leaders, people that lead with authenticity and integrity and empathy and, and, and reason. But when you have leaders that use language the way we have seen in recent years, it filters down to the public and it gets the people who are angry anyway about their circumstances in life or about who they are. And then they have a cause and and that's been very damaging.
0: The problem is that at least in this country, we are choosing our leaders and many other countries We might not. And then we could say, okay, well, I didn't choose. I don't even have the system to choose these leaders. So um, the leaders do this and, you know, they're dictators or Democrat, and that's who they are. Um, But we are in a country that we choose our leaders. And how come, how come this is what we have come to to choose these types of leaders who are consistently uh, portraying hate, hate to, toward everyone.
1: In the in, in the in the last presidential, not this last presidential election, when it was Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, a poll taken before that ele- that presidential election, eighty percent, eighty percent of Americans said they had no faith in Congress whatsoever. Eighty percent. Democrats vote Democratic, Republicans vote Republican, and and no one crosses the aisle. You don't see that anymore. I have a client who was a longtime lobbyist in D.C., and she said she's in her mid-70s. She said when she started out, you saw Republicans and Democrats, they had dinner together, they socialized together, you know, Tip O'Neill was president, was friends with Ronald Reagan, uh, and They did cross the aisle and and they had different points of view, but they talked to each other. Now, she said, you never see them. You never even see them eating together because it's like a clan and Americans were disappointed that nothing seems to get done. You know, when when one group votes one way all the time, you know something's wrong. When no one ever crosses the aisle, like a Democrat never says that a Republican said something useful or vice versa, something's really wrong. The system isn't working. So the system wasn't working according to the majority of Americans. And we were open for some kind of change, somebody offering some kind of change. That's what Donald Trump did at the time. He capitalized on that. He capitalized on the, the sense of hopelessness that most people had about Congress and about leadership, and
0: that's why we chose. Is that what you're saying? Like even the senators, because it's not just about one leader.
1: No, it's it's about it's about senators as 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 well. But we we you know you know I, I usually I tell the story in, in the group. Uh, I mean in the in the in the book about John McCain when he was when a woman approached him and, and at, a, at a rally when he was running and, you know, she said, Barack Obama is not a U.S. citizen. He's an Arab. And he said, no, 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 he isn't. And he grabbed the mic and he said, he's a decent human being. We just happen to have a different point of view. Now I didn't agree with everything John McCain stood for, but you see, that's, that's what we need. You see how he, he didn't want to fuel it in today's world. He would fuel it. Oh, you think he's an Arab, you know, and, but he didn't do that. He had integrity, and he said that is not true. Right. That is not true, and that's not the way we. Do. He said that's not the way we do things. But right now, it is the way we do things, mm-hmm. and we have to get back to that point where we're electing people with integrity that they don't. They don't just vote their party; they vote what they believe.
0: And and to bring people together. And I think that's because uh, whomever becomes part of the, um, no matter what, if they are part of the politics, they are also representing the bigger picture. So what happens if we can't agree to disagree? Because it seems like um, on some level, we've got to come to terms with each other. For example, I'm uh, you know, in my neighborhood, um, it's, it's like very, very uh, diverse, but however, from the political perspective, it's lean to one side only. And then when you see other people who are uh, from the another side, um, there is this type of like you know wanting to look and, and um, uh, calm things down, although they're, they can be heated conversations. I've gone to uh, gatherings and different places where people can get into really, really heated conversation, but um, they find their humanity at another place, which is, okay, maybe 10% of my life is different than you and I can't disagree, but maybe 90% of other aspects of relationship, I can come to terms as a human to human. If we're in a neighborhood, we all can come to terms with each other of how to keep each other safe, how to be there for each other. If we are a family member, although we might not agree in some of these areas, but you know, look at the beauty of what we have as a human to, to human. And then we can maybe extend this as a human being to others that we're still, there's so many um you there's so many uniqueness but there's so many of similarities and sameness and how we could be together you could take this the same two people who are fighting and put them in a war as a team member together and they'll hold on to each other you know so you can see that we could all bond in another level with each other although there are areas that we disagree um how do we disagree i mean how do we kind of like um agree to disagree
1: and what do we can to do that i think one of the one of the one of the formats that allows people to disagree in reasonable ways is when we get together in groups and have discussions you know there is this concept deliberate polling where you bring people of opposite points of view together and then you have some experts in the room say it's climate change and there's there's a, there's a tremendous disparity on both sides of of what people believe, and then you bring some people in who present the facts, and then you have a discussion. One of the things that causes prejudice is people look at another person. If they look unfamiliar, there's a sense of tension and they feel uneasiness. But the more exposure, we know familiarity and exposure makes a difference. If we can sit down together and talk and have reasonable discussions and have moderators, this is where I think psychologists play a role with a psychologist as a moderator. We've seen this in police forces where they teach policemen to not use their guns, but use the, teaching them how to talk to a, to a person who they're trying to arrest or how to, how to influence that person through language. We, we need to be able to be with each other, people of different points of view and have discussions. Because when we're able to do that, we see that in those deliberate polling groups, People walked out of and said, 70% of the people changed their minds. They changed their minds, but because they had never been exposed to someone who explained to them why they think the way they think. Yes.
0: Um, In one minute, anything we haven't shared that you really want people to
1: know? Just that I am tremendously hopeful that we as a country will come together again and I think it, things are broken, but we will, we will come together. And it's, in, it's important that we have hope that that can take place. I just want to share that I'm not pessimistic. I wrote this book because I believe there are ways that we can come together as we have in the past, and that we can get along differently. And as you said, you know, in the end, we're, we, we have more in common than we are dissimilar.
0: Yes. And what I've noticed is for myself, I've decided not to fight. I've decided, you know, when when I decided not to fight, then the fighting part of me doesn't need to be out. It's more like, you know, if, if there's a part of people that um, stops fighting, not that you, they can't take a stand for what they want, but they don't have to do it through fighting. Uh, can it be through a peaceful conversation? Like you talk about knowledge, truth. Um, empathy for for others, Others. This, these are what are the main points in your book, empathy, listen to each other, have a genuine interest for another human being, so that we could come together and negotiate on so many things that we all are living together and, with, you know, whether we're in the same community, neighborhood, city, country, on earth, like, this is something we got to do constantly, all day.
1: Yes, yes. And we have to address bias, but not in an aggressive way, in an assertive way where you're curious about understanding. I had an example the other day with a retired physician who said to me, he mentioned President Biden, and he said, well, you know, he has Alzheimer's. And I said, you're too intelligent to say that, really? You really think he has? Well, you know, he's he's a diehard Republican, and I said, let's have a conversation based on the facts. Does he have Alzheimer's? Well, I guess not. So why would you say that? Well, everybody knows. See, you're saying everybody knows that. No, that's not true. Everybody doesn't know that. It's not true. It's not true. You can dislike his policy. You can even dislike him. But give give me the reasons that make sense. Let's have a reasonable conversation. And we did. But if I had said to him, "What are you saying? That that's not true?" What you know? If I got angry with him, where would that conversation go? Yeah,
0: nowhere, right. Dr. Arthur Sierra Micoli, uh, please get this book everyone, American Reunited, a relational solution to bridging the political, social, and personal chasm dividing our nation. You can go to balanceyoursuccess.com and you can also get the book in, um, I'm assuming Amazon or any other
1: location, right? Yes, Amazon has it now, yes.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show. I always learn from you. I really enjoyed the book and uh, and hope to have you back.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. Very, I appreciate it very much. And for everyone out
0: there, create an amazing world for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week,
1: bye-bye.